and our lives were shaped, our ethics, our morals, the way we talked, the way we ate, the way we slept, the way we, you know, had sex, the way we thought about anything, the, everything was shaped by our theology. And then our social lives were totally shaped by the church, totally, completely. Our whole lives were controlled by the theology and the praxis of, of church. That, you know, when we start to f- experience that crumble or we start to walk away from it, it's totally catastrophic. Totally, totally, totally catastrophic. And it can take years for us to get through it to the other side where we even start to feel normal again. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and before we get started with today's show, I just have a couple of announcements. First, okay, there's construction work going on around my house. There's also a dog that has been barking all fucking morning, and if I wasn't a vegan and opposed to animal cruelty, I swear I would take like a bayonet and and go kill the thing because it's about to drive me crazy. So all that to say, my Patreon is now live. This is an opportunity for you to go give me money so I can get better equipment, a better studio environment, so you don't have to deal with me putting mattresses in my windows to keep the sounds out. So it will be enormously helpful. I understand that a lot of us don't have much money. The struggle is real. I'm in the exact same boat and we don't have much resources to give to things we love. And I totally get that. And if that's you, that's totally fine. Just keep listening and I will keep releasing one podcast a week and one blog post a week forever until I die. But for those of you who can give something, it would be enormously appreciated. Go to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And there you can donate $5 and you'll get an extra podcast every week called The House of Heretics in which Justin and I have unedited conversations about life, faith, doubt, and the deconstruction process. Also, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you are also aware of my good friend Matt Langston. He is the front man of the band 117 and the Jelly Rocks, and he has his own show. He comes onto this one all the time to talk about faith and doubt and so on, but he has his own show called Eleventy Life, and in that show, he talks about the life of a musician, the life of a craftsman, the highs and lows of everyday creativity. He talks to other producers producers and rock musicians and band members and it's just a fantastic show about the life of a creative and if you enjoy this one I highly recommend that you go check his out and please subscribe to it. All right well today I am very happy to welcome the one and only naked pastor to the show David Hayward. He is a former pastor uh, with decades of experience in ministry and then in 2010 he left the ministry teaching about spiritual independence, leading community, and doing these incredible cartoons every day that I'm sure if you have any connection to progressive Christian circles online, you have seen Naked Pastors cartoons at some point. So, David, thank you so much for joining me. It is wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, ditto. 
Glad to be here. Yeah, so I just have to say here at the top of the show, I'm very sad to report to my listeners that you are not, in fact, naked. No, no, very PG. I'm very PG in person. My blog posts are, you know, PG usually. I might drop the F-bomb once in a while or something like that, but no, I'm, I'm fully clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I'm, I have to say I'm disappointed because, you know, as you can see, I'm like, <laughs> I'm here in my grungy bathrobe, I'm bearing my chest to a man of the cloth, just like yeah. waiting to, you know, I'm wearing this bathrobe so that, you know, in case he were in the nude, I could just take it off too and I could be naked with the naked pastor, but <laughs> all, all of my hopes were thwarted. Yep. So. Yeah, I forgot my trusty T-shirt on. Okay, very good. So you have this really interesting story, and I'm I'm curious if you could just briefly kind of tell us kind of a basic outline of of your of your story, where you you started in ministry and you were in ministry for many many years, and now you are in kind of this weird, wonderful place. And, and could you mm. kind of tell that that process. Yeah. So I call myself my own ecumenical movement because I've been everywhere. I was baptized as an infant in the Anglican church. And, you know, then we moved around. We went all over the place, different kinds of churches. I ended up spending most of my years in the Pentecostal church and went to Pentecostal Bible College. That's where I met my wonderful wife, Lisa. Then I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and then from there we switched to Presbyterian. I got ordained Presbyterian. Uh, that was, uh, you know, fine for a while, but I felt like it was like trying to light wet firewood for me, and so we ended up in the Vineyard Church, which for me was a really comfortable mixture of an attempt to do some decent theology as well as sort of a charismatic expression of Christianity, and then that's where we ended up, and that was in 2010 was when I left the ministry. From there, I went teaching English as a second language to international students at a university. That lasted a couple of years. And then in 2012, I launched The Lasting Supper, my online community. And then I've been blogging and everything from like 2004 or five and cartooning every day and everything. So I decided in 2012 to launch The Lasting Supper and to really push at trying to become financially independent and an entrepreneur, I guess. And so I work from home now doing what I do. Tell us about The Lasting Supper. So The Lasting Supper is my online community where I encourage people, help people through the deconstruction process. You know, as you may know, when we deconstruct and we may leave the church or whatever, and our beliefs change, or we might even lose our faith or whatever, it becomes, it can be very, very lonely. And I was experiencing that myself. You know, when people leave the church, you're on your own. You're you're really our spiritual refugees or church refugees without a home, without a country. And there's no place for you to go. There's no place. And, and on top of that, you're already suspicious of groups anyway. And so I decided to launch The Lasting Supper. Uh, it's a membership site. And we have, a, there's over a couple hundred people there, just a really dynamic community of people who are right across the board, anywhere from believing going to church but questioning their beliefs to atheists who no longer go to church and everyone in between. And we respect and value one another, and uh, we just are having a wonderful time together. So it's it's mm. been really wonderful for me, but also uh, it's been very helpful for so many people. That's wonderful. That's yeah. great to hear. So your name, Naked Pastor, explain what that is. Why Why the Naked Pastor? My, my first uh, internet name was Church Pundit. And uh, that sounded really 
pretentious. So I eventually <laughs> bought the Naked Pastor, which is anything but pretentious. And uh, I, I, I say to people when they say, what do you mean by Naked Pastor? And I say, Naked Pastor, naked because I'm real and pastor because I care. Hmm. And, you know, I used to be a real pastor for like almost 30 years. I pastored real local churches. And some people still claim I'm pastoring in a way. I'm helping people progress along a spiritual, you know, progression or whatever process. But uh, anyway, now now some people say, oh, you're a naked pastor. You're, you're a pastor without his church on or whatever. So it has all kinds of layers of meaning. And, you know, sometimes I've struggled with the name because... Some people are offended by the word naked, but it's stuck. It's hard to forget, it's, and a lot of people catchy. know about it. It's, it's very, very catchy. It's very catchy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, on your website, you talk about spiritual independence and mm. how you are helping coach people to their own spiritual independence. Right. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that some, because that's really yeah. interesting to me. I feel like a lot of my audience, and I think just a lot of people in general, are are in the process of figuring out what stays and what goes when it comes to their religious and spiritual expression. And so it's almost like we're all in this place of, of compromise. We're all f- we're all negotiating. We're all figuring out, you know, here's this really painful, beautiful, toxic, lovely, wonderful, hideous thing called our Christian faith and our Christian upbringing. But I, I think especially as a lot of people in my generation, or and of course, I'm in a tiny niche. I'm in the in this weird, you know, white hipster millennial deconstructionist thing. And so mm-hmm. this might not be indicative of everyone, but a, a lot of people that I know especially in in my generation, the millennials and post-millennials, we're not going so much to the extremes as in fundamentalism or new atheism, mm-hmm. but, but rather we're kind of uh, sorting through all that we were given and compromising on what stays and what goes and and sorting through it and deciding what we want our individual faith to look like. And and so I think that your thing about spiritual independence kind of speaks to that. So I'm wondering if you could unpack spiritual independence some. Yeah, I remember the first time I, I posted, I think it was on Facebook, where I said we should all be striving for our own personal spiritual independence. And the kickback I got from that astounded me. It kind of surprised me because a lot of people said, but we're not supposed to be alone. A lot of people felt independence was a really bad word, that we are social people. We're supposed to be in community. And I knew, you don't understand what I mean by independence. Like my wife and I, we've been married going on 38 years. We, uh, we've come to believe, we've come to know that a really healthy relationship is made of Two independent people who willingly, volitionally come together yes. in a, into a relationship. Yeah. You've got to be healthy by yourself before you can be healthy in the group. So that's what I talk about spiritual independence. You need to be spiritually healthy on your own before. The, and this is one of the big problems, in my opinion, with church is we're not independently spiritually healthy. And we, as unhealthy spiritual people, go into this church and get sucked into, instead of a healthy interdependence, a really yes. unhealthy and even toxic codependence, where we're just, we're just swimming in this pool of codependency. And it's very, very unhealthy. So what, I, what the Lasting Supper helps people do, and what I help people do in my coaching and all that kind of thing, 
and in my writing and all my cartoons, I'm usually addressing how important it is to get out from under the control of authority and power and figure out a way how you can be healthy on your own spiritually, learn how to be autonomous, learn how to be independent, learn how to make your own decisions and choose your own choices and, you know, and settle on your own path and make your own discoveries. That's what adulthood is. Mm. And so that's what I'm arguing for when I talk about spiritual independence. Mm, I'm so glad that you brought up the idea of codependence within Christianity. I think that codependence is so interwoven into so many religious communities that it's almost like we are practically, for those of us born into religion, we are almost Mm -hmm. born codependent. I mean, those lessons go so deep. And, you know, my own story of codependence with the church is that I struggled so much with being queer in the church and I felt and I felt like I couldn't be happy I felt like I couldn't live I felt like I couldn't be fully connected until I was somehow in sync with the church right right I felt like I I couldn't be I felt like I couldn't be happy or whole or in sync with myself until I was in sync with the church. Right. And until I was in union somehow with the church. And so that either looked like being fully committed to the traditional church ethic on homosexuality and fully embraced by the church or uh, bringing the church onto my side when I went more progressive and I finally came to affirm my sexual orientation. And, you know, like, I oh, I can't sleep until the church agrees with me on this issue. And I realized, and it killed me. It totally burned me out. It fucked me up so much. Mm-hmm. And it just, mm-hmm. it destroyed me for so many years. I was living half a life because my identity, my sense of individual autonomy was non-existent. I was so wrapped up. I was so enmeshed with the church. Right. right. And, and so I really, really relate to what you're talking about here. Yeah. So for me, I t- there's a couple of models. There's probably more, but let's let's boil it down to s- simplify the argument. There's a couple of models make for an unhealthy or a healthy church. So for an unhealthy church, I think they their requirement is that you join the church, conform, and then from there you're given permission to figure out how to be you in that context. Yeah. So your first job, like what you experienced and like I experienced, your first job is to conform. And then you got to learn out how to be you and within those parameters. Yeah. The healthy church encourage you to figure out how to be you, authentically you, and free. And then we figure out how to be a community, a bunch of these free independent people. That to me is a way more dynamic, healthier community when free people come together. The the challenge shouldn't be how can we make you conform to mm. who we are as a church? The challenge should be how can I be free without violating the freedom of others? That yeah. is the best question a community should be asking. Yeah, absolutely. And that means not agreeing, and that means being comfortable with dissonance, is what that means. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because churches that require conformity are terrified of disagreement yes. or or difference or diversity because mm. it, it just creates chaos. It's real chaos. But to me, that's the dyna- dynamic. That's the dynamism of really good, healthy, dynamic community. 
mm. is when is when there is the diversity. I think homogeneity creates really boring, unhealthy, and it can even become toxic community. Diversity, I think, creates the best community. Yeah, I totally agree. What Jonathan Haidt calls purifying. Uh, within a community. Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, someone who's just really helped me understand (laughs) my life and Mm -hmm. community in general. And he says that there's this very dangerous thing that communities start to do, and that is purifying their ideology. And that there becomes the the time tinier and tinier margins of permissible disagreement. And and so the the razor's edge, the razor's margin, the razor thin margin of disagreement just starts getting tinier and tinier and we keep expelling more and more people out because of these minuscule disagreements and he calls that process purifying a community and it's very dangerous. It is dangerous. And you know you were you were just talking about a lot of the anxiety that people feel in the face of disagreement. I remember that so vividly, like this terror of looking in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. This terror of reading the wrong thing, looking in the wrong direction, talking to the wrong people, because what if they're right? <laughs> or what if they have something that I don't, in which case my whole world is wrong? and I just can't abide that. And that's just too scary. And and the end result is a narrow, suffocating world, a world that has less community and less friendship. Like my, my world was stunted because of that. And now, now that I have gone through this deconstruction process, which was deeply painful, now that I've gone through that, I feel like my world is more expansive. I can be friends with many types of people and it's okay yeah yeah absolutely and i don't feel like my world is threatened and and as a result my relationships are more rich i'm less brittle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that's absolutely true and you know if you can find that i always encourage people if you can find that in a church or some kind of a community somewhere man hang on to that because that's really rare if that's yeah. happening somewhere where you can experience what you just said uh man that's that's to die for yeah really It really, really is. Yeah, and you know, I just recently had a conversation with an old friend. So uh, a lot of old friends listen to this show and it is and read my writing and it is awkward as fuck because I'm not where they are <laughs> anymore right. and we still love each other but there's this big chasm between us and I'm very conflict averse and would literally rather you know disembowel myself than have an unpleasant conversation and they're super anxious over my faith and where I stand with Jesus and I recently had one of these conversations with a friend of mine and what he said was, you know, after pushing me on a lot of points, he finally looked at me and and said two really unexpected things. One, so Stephen, it sounds like you're knocking on a lot of doors and you're really seeking, but how do you know you're knocking on the right doors? But are you knocking on the right doors? You know, implying that there are some doors more worthy of being knocked on. And of course, those are evangelical Christianity and I'm not knocking on them. And then he, and then he went on to say, and just so you know, you better be right. Because if you're wrong, you are leading thousands of people astray. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Yeah, no, no pressure, pressure at all. Well, you know, what I wanted to tell him was, well, well, you too, you know, like, this isn't a one-way street. You're, yeah. you might be doing that too. You know, we all wow. have. But, but just coming face to face with that anxiety over, yeah. 
over the fear of difference is really overwhelming. You've talked about deconstruction. Could you talk about that? And and especially, and this is something that I don't think is communicated enough, the pain of deconstruction. It is one of the most painful things that I have experienced in recent memory. I mean, it's awful. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that some. Yeah, yeah. So most people's deconstruction, what I'm discovering, there's different kinds of deconstruction. There's deconstruction of our relationship with the church and so on and so forth. The kind of deconstruction I'm really concerned about is the theological deconstruction where we start questioning our faith, we start questioning our beliefs, things start changing. And for me, uh, for many people, that is the end of the road. That is danger, danger. Yeah. That is uh, that is the destruction. That's the beginning of backsliding and all that kind of thing. Whereas I see it as a progression on the on the growth, spiritual growth yeah. spectrum, and that you know when we get to about, let's say we use James Fowler's stages of faith model, where he he discerns six stages of faith. When you get to about the third model, the end of the third stage, rather, uh, beginning of the fourth stage where there's questions, a lot of, that's where a lot of people give up. That's mm. where a lot of people throw in the towel. That's where a lot of churches say, you shall not pass. You know, that's, where, <laughs> that's where it ends, right? Could you uh, go into what the six stages are? Oh, dear. I can't remember them all, but like they, I, I won't be able to remember the names of each stage. Okay, but no worries. Yeah, you know, you start with infant and then child and then teen, and but then when you get into your teen, sort of goes along with your age, yeah. teen, young adult, and so on. That's when you start to question things, or you should. And then stage four is where you you allow mystery into your concepts, into your ideology, into your theology. Mm. Stage five is where you're very comfortable with the mystery with uh, universality and so on. But then stage six is universal faith, where you recognize that all is one, etc. Mm, mm-hmm. That's so, cool. Okay. When you get when you, when you get to about the middle, though, when questions start happening, that's when it gets really troublesome, and that's when it's really terrifying for you and those around you. So yes. churches tell you to stop, stop backsliding, stop questioning. It's of the devil. Whatever doubt is of the devil, and so on and so forth. And and it it's also very terrifying to you because the things that you that were the cornerstones of your beliefs are suddenly starting to crumble and so like i've often cartooned along this theme where a person is in bed sweating and terrified that they don't believe in hell anymore because they're afraid they're going to go there (laughs) (laughs) it's really i remember those moments where i don't believe in hell oh my god i'm going to go to hell because i don't believe in hell you know and it's like it's really really real i know a lot of people are like oh what's the big deal man i mean just stop believing in it like unicorns just like or santa claus yeah no big deal there's no santa claus there's no unicorn get on with it but for many of us like you i gather and like me yes where our religion is so entwined entangled in our dna it's you just can't extract it you can't shake it you just can't shake it you just can't say oh i just don't believe in that anymore because Mm. It's so foundational to our whole lives, you know. Yes. And our lives were shaped, our ethics, our morals, the way we talked, the way we ate, the way we slept, the way we, you know, had sex, the way we thought about anything. Everything was shaped by our theology. And then our social lives were totally shaped by the church, totally, completely. Our whole lives were controlled by the theology and the praxis of, of church. 
that, you know, when we start to experience that crumble or we start to walk away from it, it's totally catastrophic, totally, totally, totally catastrophic. And it can take years for us to get through it to the other side where we even start to feel normal again. I'm so glad that you bring that up because one thing that I don't see enough talk about is just how excruciating this process is. And, you know, I I describe myself as a non-theist. I'm right now, you know, I tell people, you know, ask me in a year, my tune will probably be different because that's the way this thing is for me. It's very fluid. But so right now I'm, in terms of what I tangibly believe about the universe, I'm kind of more in the atheist camp. I'm more of a materialist. Don't have much belief in the supernatural. But then at the same time, I still experience God and I still speak in tongues. You know, I have that deep programming from my charismatic background. I still spontaneously speak in tongues. I'm a, I'm Episcopalian. I pray from the Book of Common Prayer. So I'm in this weird space where I still live and experience the Christ while I don't really believe it. And I'm okay with that. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I do spend a lot of time in rational skeptic circles. And one of the things that I don't see enough discussion about is just how excruciating this process is. And I wish I wish on all sides, there was more respect for just how hard and even dangerous this journey can be for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, because, I mean, like you said, this is your entire identity. This is your entire life, your entire identity. I get really frustrated when, when a lot of people say, oh, you know, religion, it provides community, and that's good. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> you have no, yeah. this, is, this is not just community. Yeah. This is literally everything. If you, when you lose that, when you lose everything, then you lose everything. It it feels like the movie Gravity. One friend of mine, Danielle, who's a co-host on the show, she says that her change from hard traditional Catholicism to finally embracing same-sex marriage, it felt like the movie Gravity. There's no up, there's no down, there's there's nothing. Mm. And what I wish more people would have would be a respect and a bit of fear and and respect for just how dangerous this process can be for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I know people who go through it and have committed have have attempted suicide. I know people who've gone through this and barely came out the other end. So I'm really really grateful to you for acknowledging that yeah well it, it it has ramifications on like like when religion holds power over every aspect of your life so does deconstruction because it's it's removing the foundations from all those things so like when i went through deconstruction and my wife we were very much we were so much on the same page like it was unbelievable and then when deconstruction started to happen we started to experiencing a drifting apart Mm. which, you know, that was devastating. We almost didn't. In fact, I wrote about it today. That was my post today about deconstruction of your beliefs and of your marriage. So you can experience your marriage can fail. Your your relationship to your work can fail. Your morals, you know, I remember this too, that, that frightening feeling of realizing, like I used to be a pastor and I used to be in the church, right? I remember a, a year or two after realizing I could go do whatever the fuck I want and nobody is going to care. Like, seriously, nobody's watching over me. Nobody is, uh, I'm not accountable to anyone anymore. (laughs) You know, like it was, it was a weird, weird moment to realize Mm. that I get whatever I want. 
immorally and and nobody would say oh you know he's a pastor or whatever right so yeah and yeah no one no one is looking out for you you're not accountable to anyone anymore and and that to me was on the one hand that was a terrifying liberty i'd never felt before yes and and so you know our my marriage nearly I, we nearly lost my marriage i nearly lost my moral center yeah alcohol tobacco drug abuse can become an issue i'm not saying it was for me well alcohol was very attractive to me not drugs but that then you you start experiencing all kinds of unrest in all the areas of your life it's it is totally devastating and it's not just as easy as saying oh i no longer believe in the spaghetti monster like it's just not that easy no not at all you know i remember i i sunk to very scary depths in in 2014 Mm -hmm. where you know in 2013 i had a very very successful blog actually called sacred attention and it was specifically directed at the lgbt faith issue and it got a lot of press it got a lot of views and I'm and I'm really proud of my work there I think I did some of my best writing ever during that time but it also just so destroyed me because Mm. I was codependent. I was yearning for the approval of the church and and that just destroyed me. And then after that, I just sank into this horrific up is down, down is up, left is right. I lost, you know, I was still desperately trying to hold on to faith. I sunk into a horrible depression. I became very sad. I've, I've talked about this on the show before. I became dangerously sexually compulsive, just mm-hmm. just became super reckless. And I'm kind of amazed that I survived, you know, and, and that was directly tied to the deconstruction of my faith. Yeah, you know, and so this is dangerous stuff. This is it hard is. stuff, and it is. And so, you know, for all the Sam Harris's and Richard Dawkins and so on, whose whose work I do respect. I mean, there's a there, a lot of their stuff. I'm not opposed to everything they do. I've learned a lot from people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. I listen to Sam Harris's podcast all the time. But for people who have a cavalier, will just stop. This is nonsense. You don't mm-hmm. get it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Please right. don't do that. Please don't tell people that this this can kill people. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's documentaries on Netflix for example about cults. Yes. So CNN did one hell hell holy hell. Holy hell. Oh man, it's amazing. And then there's another one I think is Wild Wild West. Uh Wild Wild Country. Yeah. Wild Wild Country, yeah. Yeah, both there's of those a, there's are a bunch of them. So incredible. They're they're both on Netflix. Yeah, so the, some somebody who hasn't had my religious experience or history will say, "Why are these people such idiots for, you know, becoming so involved in something so stupid? Like they're idiots." And I'm saying, "You don't you don't understand. These are very intelligent people. Exactly. Most of these people are very intelligent. These people are professors and lawyers and, you know, uh, you name it. Like the, you have no idea the power, the 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 power, intoxicating power religion can have on your whole life. Yeah. And and uh, you know, a lot of those people when they leave these cults, they're crying because they realize they've been sexually abused, they've been ripped off, you name it. But they miss the community and they miss the power of the love that they felt and the yes. So all that I totally get it. I totally get it. And it takes them like some of these people have been interviewed decades later, right? And they're still crying. Yeah. It's yeah. just so real to them, right? It's a long time. Yeah, because the the pain of what they experienced is so huge and the loss of yes. that 
intimacy and that community and that identity is so devastating. Yeah, all, it really all is. simultaneously. And so on your journey, what were some of the really excruciating points of deconstruction? Well, for me, I kind of had the perfect storm. <laughs> the perfect storm of empty nest. All three of our kids were had left home okay. at the same time. Lisa went back to university. Very proud of her at 48 years old to get her nursing degree. That's awesome. I left the ministry. We lost our friends. We left the church. I lost my income. Mm. I was going through, I'll admit, some kind of a midlife crisis. Uh, we were, we had just filed for bankruptcy when mm-hmm. we left the ministry. So it was a perfect storm. It was completely, I can't believe I made it. I really can't believe I did it. <laughs> but we did. We made it. But some of the most excruciating things was learning how to be married again. That was probably the big one. For me, it was learning how to be an independent person who could make my own choices, make my own decisions, and choose my own life, and to be ethical, figure out a new way to be ethical without the church breathing down my neck, making sure I was doing it, or being held accountable. Mm. Um, And then giving up. Like, okay, theology was a big deal for me. I was... I was a pastor. I got my BA in Bible and theology, and I got my master's in theology and Bible and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I I went through all that. So for me, the, the biggest deal was the theological deconstruction I went through. Those All those other things were the life, my life. But the theological was excruciating. But eventually I came to a place of deep, deep inner peace. Because now I know we're all one. You have your ideas, I have my ideas, but there's just one reality. And, you know, I could go into that in way more detail, but, you know, just in, in summary, I just finally came to this complete inner peace, peace of mind that uh, we're all one, it's all going to be okay, and I enjoy living in that peace and trying to figure out what it means for the world. Mm. Do you still consider yourself Christian or part of the Christian tradition in some way, or are, have you just let that go? No, I tell people that my family of origin is Christian. Yeah. Uh, my home is in Christianity, but I have cottages everywhere. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm my own ecumenical movement and all that kind of thing. I say all those things. But yeah. for me, I grew up in the Christian church. I really appreciate Christian theology. For me, it's one of the best. And for me, it's one of it's the most alivest paradigm through which to understand the world. Mm-hmm. For me, the a lot of the Bible and the gospel stories is mythic, mythological, but but carries incredible truth about the universe yeah. and reality. So uh, a lot of people say you're just a mystic, but I I, I like I kind of like that word. I kind of tend towards mystical theology. Me too, and, and a philosophical approach to theology. After all, theology used to be philosophy, and um, you know, now if it's all branched off into, you know, specific kinds of theology or philosophy. But I love that kind of a philosophical, quantum physics, you know, theological. I'm, I just love that kind of stew. That's and cool. That's what I love to eat. That's really cool. You know, I was thinking the other day that trying to, trying to express to myself the ways in which my Christianity has shifted and and I kind of came to this idea that maybe it is less, I, I've shifted less from the idea of religion as being truth, more to the idea of religion being language. Mm-hmm. And that and that religion, 
Christianity is my specific language. And yes. it was given to me, it is my mother tongue, and it is in my bones, and I'll probably never get rid of it. And that, and I've learned to accept that and run with that, because then that means that I can build something new with it. And it yeah. isn't to say that it is the only language, or even that it's the best language, but it's the best language for me. And uh, within each language, there are specific paradigms, there are specific lenses through which we view the world, there are specific words that other languages don't have that help us comprehend the world around us and relationships and ourselves and so on. And it isn't to say that one language is more right than the other, but simply that this is my language. I agree with that 100%. Like I, I've said, and I've written um, I, I call it my Z theory. Yeah, I, I, I was reading a bit of that just before yeah. we started talking. Could you talk about that some? Yeah, so there's only one reality that everybody... It started with a dream I had in May of nineteen uh, of 2009. I, I had this dream, this vision of a waterfall. And I was standing at the bottom. It was a huge waterfall like Niagara Falls. Mm. And I was looking up and I understood that this was the structure of reality. And that structure is over the rim. I, we can't see what that is. That is mystery. That mm. is the infinite source, the un source. We don't know what it is, but we can only guess what it is from what is coming over the falls. And that is, you know, the expression or the manifestation of what's up there. And then when it hits the ground and spreads out, that's it spreading out all over the land. So I saw that as sort of a Trinitarian structure. Uh, the unseen is God. Christians would call God. The, the manifestation of that, that would Christians would call the incarnation in Christ. And then where it spreads out over all the earth, what people would Christians would call that the spirit. And, and so that's what I woke up and my mind was instantly at peace. It was an amazing experience and it's never gone away. Wow. At that time as a Christian, I could be standing on this side of the falls looking at that reality. Maybe a Buddhist could be over here looking at the same reality from a different angle. A Muslim, a Hindu, yes. an atheist, whatever. They'd all be looking and they'd all be trying to make sense of this. They'd all be using their own language, like you say, yes. to apprehend what's happening and then their own language to articulate it. So mm. it's like you say, different religions and philosophies and even atheism, all these are different languages in an attempt to articulate what we have apprehended in the universe. And, yes. and so that to me is a universalist idea for sure, but uh, one that brings me great comfort and realize, I realize I'm at one with you. We might have different ideas. That's all they are. They're just thoughts, but yeah. we're... We're deeply connected at a fundamental level and one with one another. And me with an atheist or this or that other person, we're all, it's the only thing that seems to divide us are thoughts. Mm. And that's it. And we need each other because our thoughts are so different. And, and that's one of the big lessons that I've learned is, you know, if, if I exclude people who think differently from me, and, and this even means people whose ideas I believe are tangibly sinful, you know, I think that there are bad ideas, and I think that there are mm -hmm. ideas that have bad fruit and are shadow ideas, ideas that create suffering. But I tend to believe, and so what I'm about to say does not negate that fact, Mm -hmm. At the same time, I genuinely believe that we need each other because I think that on an individual level, our understanding of apprehending truth is very low. 
You know, mm-hmm. our our likelihood of getting truth is is pretty low at an individual level. But I think the more we share ideas, the more we collectively look at this thing called reality, the more likely we are to understand what it is. Right. You know. Yeah. And, and yeah. so that that's allowed me to uh, have lots of conversations with lots of different kinds of people, and it has been deeply enriching for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so these shadow, these shadow ideas or these uh, dangerous or harmful ideas, uh, th- I've often asked myself, why do these exist, and why are there people who promote bad things and so on? Like I see us all as one. What do you do with this character or this idea that intends to harm? And that's always been the political problem. That's always been the yes. philosophical problem. That's always been the scientific problem. Why? I, I just finished reading an amazing book on the seven brief lessons in physics by Carlo Rovelli. And it's a marvelous, lovely book. I just love it. But one of his questions are in the scientific community, why do things cool? Why do things cool down instead of warm up? Or why do things fall instead of rise? <laughs> you know, like, and so it, you have to factor in this problem where things can fall. It means when stop when things stop working, that they will fall and they will cool down. You know, we, the, the, when cells move faster and work faster, they heat up. And I think as long as we work for unity, we, we will achieve it. We, as long as we work for the manifestation, I already believe we're one, but as long as we work for the manifestation of unity, we can experience it. If we stop, the easy way out is division. Exactly. The easy way is to stop working, everything falls, everything cools down into degradation and deconstruction and crumbles apart into fractions and divisions and mm. so on. So, yeah, I, I totally think that's a cool thought. It's entropy, you know, the, the law of entropy, that, that, that things fall apart, that, that uh, things go from a state of order to disorder. And that's true for human relations and the human mind as well, you know, that we yes. are. Uh, and, and so we're constantly kind of pushing against this tide of entropy. And, that's right. Um, and, you know, I just remembered the thing that I was going to say a minute ago, just about what you were saying about the dream you had and that there is one reality and, and how we're all trying to understand it and we're all trying to get it. You know, one of the quotes that, I have found really helpful is from, I believe from Philip K. Dick, the sci-fi writer who said, reality is that which when you stop believing in it doesn't go away. Yeah. You know, and, yeah, that's and good. there is a single reality and that reality is what is still there even after I stop believing in it. And, mm. and, but we're only going to get there. We're only going to see it if we, if we try it collectively, if we do it collectively. Yeah. And that takes a kind of humility to, and heroism is checked yes. when, when we say we, we have to do this together. I require the insights of other people from other faiths and other religions and other philosophies and so on. We all require these other insights to get a, a fuller picture of what reality is rather than from my, like you, Western white male. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. White, cis, gender, male, yeah. middle class. Yeah, I- exactly. And so, you know, as we come to the end of our conversation here, I'm just curious what insights you would have for people who are in the middle of their deconstruction and who are really suffering. And what would you say to those people? What what guidance or what words of comfort would you give them? Well, it's worth it. 
that's one of the big deals. It's for me, I've never been happier. My marriage is way better. Uh, I feel free. Nobody is breathing down my neck. Nobody's got a gun to my head. I'm, I'm happy. I'm free. Yeah. Uh, happily married. My kids are doing great. I'm making money. And I have a lot more free time. I'm not worrying about what others think as much. And so on. So really, and, and peace of mind over and above all. So really, it is worth it. Hang in there. You're in withdrawal. You're, it's like cold turkey. It's going to hurt for a while. Yes. But eventually, it's gonna, you're going to start feeling better and healthier for it. I really do uh, insist on that. But there are a couple of practical things you can do. And these are the, you know, I'm not trying to point you to my services or whatever. Just find whoever you can. Find somebody to talk to. Like, you know, talk to a good counselor or a therapist or a coach. Find a community, whether locally or online, things like The Lasting Supper or other communities are out there. Read people who are deconstructing. Read me, read um, Stephen, read, read other people who Science are... Science Mike. Science Mike Science is great. Mike, yeah, like, like just, just read up, you know, and realize you're not alone. That's one of the most empowering things is to realize you're not crazy, that yes. this is normal and healthy. Yeah, get up. Eat healthy, exercise, drink plenty of water, uh, just take care of yourself, just basic basic life needs, and try to ignore those negative voices in your head. Speak positively to yourself. You're doing okay. Even if you still believe in God and you're not sure if you believe in God or whatever, the last time you believed in God, didn't you think he was gracious? So God would have grace for this, right? That God of yours, he would have grace for this. So take advantage of it. Use it. Use this time to discover what is true. And so that, that would be my advice. And you'll find it. You'll find it. Promise. That's fantastic. Well, David, it's been great talking to you. This has been really, really wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Anytime. So for before we end here, I've gotten into the habit of asking my, uh, my guests what are three books that they've really enjoyed oh. lately on this topic or on any topic. Oh, okay. Well, I just mentioned one, uh, The Seven Brief Lessons in Physics by Carlo Rovelli. Mm. That, is, that is one of my favorite books of all time. Awesome. Uh, one book that totally shook my world uh, is Krishnamurti. He's an Eastern philosopher. Krishnamurti's book, a little book called The Urgency of Change. And now I'm right in the middle of a, a really good book that was referred to in a, a more recent book called Deep Work by Cal, Cal Newport. Newport, which is a good book. Oh, man. Deep Work Changed My Life. Yeah, so that's been a really, really helpful book. But that referred me to The Intellectual Life by uh, Sir Talanges, and uh, he re referenced that book a lot. But Deep Work is a great, great book if you're serious about thinking. Oh, man, Deep Work is it, that, that when I read it in 2016, it, it really did change my life. I'm, I think I, I actually credit all the work I'm doing now. I think I'm, I'm only able to do the work I'm doing now because I really internalized the messages from Deep Work. So yeah, I'll, I'll also put the uh, other books you mentioned in the description so people can check them out. Sure. Where can people find you if they want to look more into your work? Nakedpastor.com or thelastingsupper.com. Yep. Awesome. I will put both in the show notes. Well, David, it's been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Nice talking to you.
you as well. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. The music is from the album Bang and Whimper by the Jelly Rocks. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you listen to music. Special thanks goes out to my team, Carson Green, Justin Kayla Bryant, for keeping me sane, helping me with all the technical stuff, social media stuff. If you like my work and appreciate it being so consistent, you have Justin and Carson to thank. The show is written and edited and produced by me. It is mastered by Matt Langston at Rock Candy Media, and we will see you next week.